0: Hi, I'm Beth Kewell, your executive career coach and host of Breakthroughs, Smart Strategies for Business and Career Growth. Today I'm really delighted to have Ethan Cross as a guest on my show. Ethan is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. As an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and Ross School of Business, Ethan studied how the conversations people have with themselves impacts their health performance, decisions, and relationships. Now, for the first time ever, Ethan has taken his lifelong work researching and understanding inner voice and self-talk and has channeled it into his book, Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it. Throughout Chatter, Ethan presents the idea of a toolbox we all possess to harness that inner chatter. Overall, today's conversation with Ethan will give you the power to change the most important conversation you have each day, the one you have with yourself. Chatter is available now online at retailers and independent booksellers everywhere. Ethan, welcome to Breakthroughs. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me, Beth. I've been looking forward to this conversation.
0: Me as well. So I'd like to know, you know, your book Chatter has gotten a lot of chatter, if you will. has a lot of attention. And I think it's because so many of us are now home working remotely. And it's the idea of, uh, you know, having a lot of time to reflect on our thoughts, some more healthy patterns than others. Um, I think it's drawn a lot of attention to your book and to your research. So I just would, you know, if you could share with us, what got you interested in researching Chatter?
1: You know, that, that actually goes way back. So that story starts from when the time I was three years old, the, the quick version of it was that I had an unusual dad who, when bad things would happen to me and by bad things, I mean, you know, not getting an extra dessert when I wanted one when I was three, he would, uh, he'd tell me to go inside and, and essentially introspect, try to find a solution. Like, why are you feeling this way? Figure it out, move on. And that was a a capacity that served me well throughout my childhood and adolescence. And then I got to college and took my first class in psychology. And about halfway through the semester, we got to the topic of introspection, turning your attention inward. And I, I found out that there was a large literature which showed that a lot of the time when people do exactly what my dad told me to do, which is focus inward to try to make sense of our problems, that rather than find clear solutions, people end up getting stuck instead. They ruminate, they catastrophize, they worry, they experience what I call chatter, which is uh, getting caught in in a negative cycle of thinking and feeling, negative thought loops, if you will, where you really feel stuck. You're not making progress, you're not finding solutions. And so putting together my own experiences with what what the science that I was exposed to to me, that raised a ginormous puzzle, which is why why is it that we're sometimes able to introspect in ways that allow us to do incredible things like problem solve, innovate, and create, but at other times we end up getting stuck in ways that are truly harmful to our careers, our relationships, and our health? And I've been trying to figure out the answer to that puzzle for the past 20 years.
0: These cyclical negative thoughts, they they impact our daily lives. They have to, I mean, because if they obstruct our ability to focus. Is there research on that that shows that it does impede our creativity? Uh, could you expound upon that a bit? Yeah,
1: there's a lot of work pointing out the negative implications of of chatter, and and you know maybe a little bit of a quick vocabulary lesson for listeners might be useful. So, when chatter is about the past, we tend to call that rumination. When you're ruminating and brooding over something that happened, thinking about it over and over. Oh, why did I say that? How am I going to fix it? Uh, when it's when you're thinking about the future and worrying about what if this happens, what if that that's you know chatter towards the future so um lots and lots of work showing that rumination and worry chatter more generally can undermine our ability to think and perform well um One of the reasons why that happens is as as most listeners will no doubt resonate with, we only have a limited amount of attention that we could focus at any given moment in time. And when we're experiencing chatter, that soaks up that attention, that limited attention we have, not leaving a whole lot left for us to do our jobs. Uh, One very concrete experience that I think uh, many people have had is trying to read a book when you're really worried or ruminating about something. You read three or four pages, you know you've read everything on the page, but you get to the end and you don't remember anything that was anything that you read. Right, nothing registered. Right. So that's an example. One example of how when we're consumed with a problem, that takes us away from uh, doing what we often need to do. Uh, it can also create chatter. Can create friction in our social relationships. We talk about our problem. We talk about them again and again and again, and that can have the effect of pushing away people that love us. Um, you know, even the most well-intentioned friends and loved ones often have a limit to what they can what they can hear. And there's also a lot of work showing how chatter can get under the skin to impact our physical health. So we know, for example, that experiencing stress in and of itself isn't a, isn't a bad thing. Actually, the stress reactions really helpful. It's good to know we have a system in place that prepares us to quickly react to threats in our environment. When stress gets unhelpful is when it becomes chronic. When we, keep on having a stress reaction that's chronically elevated over time. Uh, That's when you get wear and tear on the body that's linked with things like cardiovascular disease and certain forms of cancer. And chatter is a main culprit in terms of elongating that stress response. Because what it does is it allows us to relive and rehash our negative experiences over and over and over again. So it's like creating mini stressors in our mind. It's usually not very subtle. So um, it, it does not feel good.
0: Yes, it's almost like
1: self-torture. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not a pleasant state to be in. You know some, people, know, some people ask, how do you know if you're experiencing chatter? And my, my main answer is, you typically know when you're experiencing it.
0: So if we know that we're doing it, do you have any tools that we could apply to stop it or to control it?
1: Before I go into some tools, though, I want to go back to one thing you said, which I think is worth emphasizing, which is that... Negative emotions, experiencing negative emotions, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. I think that it is is unrealistic and undesirable to aspire to live a life bereft of any negative experiences. Anxiety, sadness, anger, in small doses, those are incredibly useful responses that help us succeed in this world. If I didn't have the capacity to experience anxiety, I would never prepare for a difficult engagement at work. Right. So a little ping of anxiety is what is what gets me going, is what makes me decide, okay, well, let me actually put some effort into preparing this presentation. So emotions are adaptive. When they become when negative emotions become harmful, is when we get stuck in them and they become prolonged. And that's really the territory of the book that we're dealing with. Now, in terms of what can people do once they find chatter striking, uh, the good news is that there are lots of science-based tools, and I talk about them in the book. Uh, I like to organize them into three categories. There are things you could do on your own. There are ways of changing the way you're thinking about and approaching a situation that can be helpful for managing chatter. Then there are ways of engaging with other people. Other people in our lives can be a real tool for helping us break free from chatter. They can also be potential liability, though. They can often, it's their best intentions, make our chatter worse. And so I, I try to break down in the book uh, why that happens and how you can leverage your relationships to your benefit and, and to other people's benefit. And then the third category of, of consists of ways of navigating the physical world around you. One of the, the topics that I just found so fascinating when I was researching the book was the, the wealth of data showing how... our our environments, our physical spaces can change the nature of the internal conversations we have from the outside in. And and so I think that's a really interesting um, area of work. So those are the three buckets. Uh, Do you want me to give you like one example of of a tool for me? Would that be helpful? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So what, like things you could do on your own, uh, one thing that I think is particularly relevant right now with respect to COVID and the stress that people are facing is something called temporal distancing or mental time travel. And what this involves is, back up, when we're experiencing chatter, we tend to, we tend to focus very narrowly on the stressor we're experiencing. It's almost like we have a tunnel vision. We get stuck in the negativity surrounding this one experience or event. And so often what we find is that one feature that a lot of tools have in common is helping us zoom out, broadening our perspective to allow us to be able to think about the experiences we're struggling with a little bit differently. And mental time travel is one uh, useful technique for me, and there's science behind this. And so what it involves is imagining how I'm going to feel nine months or 12 months or 18 months from now when we're all vaccinated and the pandemic is largely taken care of. So I think about what it's going to be like to start traveling again and seeing my colleagues and 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 family, and what that does, what that mental exercise does, is it makes it clear that what I'm experiencing right now, as awful as it is, is temporary. Right? It's bad, but it will eventually fade, and that gives me hope. Something that you mentioned, Viktor Frankl, something that he was a big proponent of. Hope can be incredibly powerful. It could be a a type of bomb for the inner voice run awry. So that's one form of mental time travel. I I also, and and listeners can also travel back in time, right? So I often think about the fact that we actually experienced something like this before. We've experienced it many times in history, the most recently in 1918, when we had the great pandemic. And that was really, really bad, but guess what? We got through that and we will get through this one and so that's another way these are these are small perspective shifts that can change the way we're thinking about our present circumstances that can break us out of that very tunnel vision zoomed in perspective that drives chatter and so that's just one one example of something you could do on you own. i probably talk about um i don't know nine or ten other other things in the book
0: Keithan, you just touched on a point that you also mentioned in your book that our physical space our environment can actually work to reduce our chatter could you explain how that works?
1: You know, I tell the story in the book of Rafael Nadal, the great tennis player, who who mentions that uh, in his autobiography, I believe he mentions that the hardest thing I struggle with on the tennis court is battling the voices inside my head, which I find to be a really profound statement because this is a guy who's competing against the best athletes in the world. And what he's most concerned about is not their physical fitness or his ability to, uh rise to their level instead he, he's concerned about you know the chatter in his head and what he does to to manage this is is he 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 engages in rituals and one component of the rituals that he engages in is he very carefully structures his surroundings so he places his water bottle in a particular his water bottles in a particular place and he makes sure he's things are ever so precisely in order and what he he describes it as having value because he doesn't feel like he's in control of his thoughts. Often when we experience chatter, we feel like our our thoughts are running wild. They're pinging all over the place. And what he's discovered and what science backs up is the idea that we can compensate for that experience of not having order by imposing order on our surroundings. And that's one way that the physical environment can impact the conversations we have with ourselves inside. So when I was writing Chatter, there'd be moments where i'd experience some chatter like a sentence wasn't coming out right a paragraph was giving me trouble i had a looming deadline and what i would do is something that for me was very atypical i say atypical because i tend to be uh how can i describe this best pretty loose when it comes to keeping things in order, like under, under normal circumstances. You know, there are piles of books and, and, and papers in my office. I've been known to have a, a few articles of clothing on the floor. You know, it doesn't make my wife very happy. But I would do something odd for me when I experienced chatter. I'd go over to the kitchen and I'd scrub the pots and pans, make sure they were shining bright. And then I neatly put them away in the cabinet. And then when I was done with that, I'd, I'd scrub down the island. And I would essentially... <laughs> I create order in the kitchen and what, and it, it consistently led me to feel better, helped me think through more clearly when I came back to, to writing the book. And so there's, there's, there's science that supports this idea. There are experiments show, which that, you know, engaging in very ordered sequences of behaviors can provide people with relief from intense emotional experiences. So that's one way that you can, harness your chatter from the outside in. And there are lots of other ones too. And what's fascinating to me about this is, you know, tools exist all around us. Some of us stumble on these tools and use them without even knowing it, right? So I think a lot of people, and and there are studies which show that many people, when they're under intense distress, when they're experiencing chronic anxiety or chatter, they reflexively engage in rituals or try to order their surroundings. So there's something inside us that is driving us to regulate ourselves in these ways what science has done is scientists have gone ahead and, and really put some of these behaviors under the microscope to show yeah they have actual value they're not just quirky and, and and I think that's pretty cool
0: the only challenge could be if your wife starts wanting you to you know have some writer's blocks more in the would very that would not be, I very, I, I would not be productive.
1: Good. So, you know, I talk about all these different tools and and the science and behind them, and I try to bring them to life by by telling stories that illustrate how they work. One important point, though, is to to really think through the metaphor of a tool. Tools are useful if you use them properly. So, you know, if we think about like a hammer, a hammer is really useful for building things and pounding nails, but it could also be not so useful if you swing that hammer too hard or in the wrong place. And so I think the tools that I talk about the same principles apply right you don't want to like overuse these tools that might be not good you want you want to figure out what the sweet spot is how do you use them in moderation and and in combination with other tools to provide you with maximal benefit. And I think that's a challenge that all readers face and it's one that scientists are currently trying to to work out to try to identify what those optimal blends of tool usages are.
0: I'd like to switch gears for a minute and talk about venting and healthy venting. And you talk about this in the book but there's a modality for venting in a healthy way and helping others vent. And there's a time and a place for it. But then there's also research you shared that shows that it can be unproductive if, if not managed properly. Could you talk a little bit about your research and what we should know about venting? So we, we don't just vent and then get into the, that negative cycle again. Yeah, and
1: let's make sure to revisit your comment about timing, because I talk about that a little bit in the book and I think it's an important feature of, of how this all works. So when we're experiencing chatter, there, we, we have two kinds of needs that other people can help us fulfill. The first is a, a social and emotional need, a need to feel connected with others, a need to know that there are other people who care about us. And when we go to someone else and we start telling them about what happened to us and what we felt and we find someone who's willing to listen to us and and really let us be heard, that satisfies that emotional need. And and there, that 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 you know, the venting piece of of all this really fits into that into that category, right? So I find my wife or friend. I start telling them about what happened and how I felt. And and they're listening. And and I feel connected to them. And I value the fact that they're taking the time to listen to me. So that's good in terms of creating a connection with us. But it doesn't do anything to help us actually work through the problem, change the way we think about the problem, broaden our perspective. And so the, the, the best kinds of social exchanges regarding chatter Take another step, which is the person we're talking to at the appropriate time helps broaden our perspective. Maybe they ask us to try to contextualize the experience. Oh, Ethan, I know this sounds t- this this is seems like a really problematic student you're dealing with. That sounds awful. How how did you deal with you know this the last time you had a student like this? Surely this isn't the only case like this you had, or or maybe they do something like, yeah, I've to, I, I've had exactly the same thing happen to me. You know what I found was useful? It was this. And you can imagine many permutations on that, right? Different ways of broadening people. But but that, that offers, what that perspective broadening does is it offers people a way of reframing this the, the, the issue that's bothering them. Simply venting on its own, that makes us feel connected, but it doesn't help us reframe the experience. And if we don't reframe it, the negative feelings and the chatter tend to persist. Now you said something really important, Beth. You said that at the very peak of your emotional response, you don't want people to give you perspective broadening advice, right? That can be patronizing. You're not ready. Not ready. And this not is, at, there's, there's research to, to, that speaks to this. Uh, Bernard Rimet is a famous um, Belgium psychologist. He writes about this. Uh, at the very peak of an emotional response, people typically aren't yet receptive to, to receiving the prospective broadening advice. And so you have to wait a little bit until their emotions subside. So you may wonder, okay, Ethan, so how long should I wait? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 75? I wish I could give you a firm answer to that. And I can't. I've read every article I could possibly find on this topic. And there's no clear prescription science base that I can provide. This is where I think the artistry of being a good support or chatter advisor comes into play. You have to feel it out. You have to know the person you're talking to. You have to take a temperature check to see if they're ready to have their perspective broadened. You can ask them, right? So do you want to help? Can I help you reframe? Or would you like me to tell you how I've thought about I've dealt with this? And, and hope that the person provides you with an honest answer. So there's definitely an, an artistry component to all of this, but I do want to emphasize that venting alone is not a route to working through and solving chatter, despite what popular culture often tells us. That's
0: that's so true. I mean, I find that there's a place for it, but initially it's just healthy. I think with the the idea I've heard is holding space. Someone just to listen to you and allow you. It's almost like when a person's going through mourning or grief, that there's a time when I would go to some house of mourning prayer. I just might Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. cry with that person or just let them talk and not even say a word. And there's value, I think, in that. So I do appreciate you focusing in on the timing as to when it's appropriate to step in and give that broader perspective, which is so very helpful and useful at, yeah. at the right time. Yeah. And
1: just, just um, to be clear, expressing our emotions is an important and critical piece of the puzzle. So I'm not advocating for not suppressing emotions and just jumping in there and getting cognitive. And what you want to do is blend the two. You want to find people you can talk to who are skilled at allowing you to express your emotions and again, really be heard, but then also at the appropriate time, helping you broaden your, your way of thinking about the experience.
0: Yeah. And it takes emotional maturity on the listener's behalf to restrain from always giving, you know, a knee jerk or a response or how to fix it proactive versus knowing when it's appropriate to listen and just hear the person and get, if they're falling into your hands Another time, when it comes to coaching, when I see that people are going back to, let's say, talking negatively about a previous employer, I do just mm-hmm. stop them in their tracks because it's like a record. I don't know if anyone out there is on the records, right? But it's like going, oh, you remember, okay. Well, going, you know, it's like recording that over and over, drilling it into our minds versus, you know, what did I learn from it? And you know what, I hone that skill, and I know what it feels like. So that could enable me to be a better leader when I have that opportunity, because I realize a great leader does this and move towards that mindset. So, Ethan, what's the deal with distancing and self-talk?
1: One of the things we know is that we are much better at, at giving other people advice than we are following our own advice. Uh, there's even a name for this. We call it Solomon's Paradox. It's named after the Bible's King Solomon, who was famous for be, being a sage leader, but you know had, had his kingdom explode or implode, I should say, because of all sorts of bad decisions. And so it, this is a basic feature of human experience. When I give talks on this, I often ask people the following situation. Has a friend or a loved one ever come to you with a problem that they're ruminating or anxious about? They're experiencing chatter. They don't know what to do, how to think through the situation, but when they present it to you, it's easy for you to give them advice to, to see the solution and consistently everyone's hand in the audience goes up. Uh, I mean, does that ring true to to you Beth you know and, and I yeah. should say for those who are listening I'm ex- I'm hesitant about you know making generalities, but this is just a very common response and so what we've learned is that there can be value in reframing how we think about our own experiences that adopting the perspective, imagining that we're We're giving advice to, let's say, a friend silently thinking through a problem or trying to coach ourselves through a problem using our own name. And so in our studies, we find that directing people, for example, to prior to having to do something stressful, to coach themselves through the situation using their name, it leads them to give give themselves more constructive, you can do it, challenge-oriented advice, as opposed to when they're stuck trying to make sense of the situation in the first person using I, me, my, when they're stuck in that kind of immersed state, they tend to worry more, experience more threat. And so it's. this is an example of how language can be harnessed to shift our perspective, right? Because if you think about like, what are the circumstances under which we use names? Most of the time we use names when we think about and refer to other people. And so the idea here is that when you use a name to think about yourself, that helps you think about your problems like they're happening to someone else. And, and with that comes distance and perspective that we know can be useful for helping people manage chatter.
0: Okay. So that I'm assuming you're talking about you're referencing right, self-talk. Right. What about when you're going for an interview or you're going to do some public speaking? Could you give an example of how third person can help ease well, some well, anxiety? I, I actually,
1: or, what I just described applies perfectly to those so situations. Right. So, you know, to be clear, I would never advocate a person, during an interview, talking about themselves in the third person, but uh, prior to engaging in the interview, when, when palms are getting sweaty and you're nervous, right? That's when you want to engage in these linguistic shifts to use distant self-talk, give yourself the kind of motivation the, the you can do it internal narrative that we know helps people perform well under stress. Once you're in the interview, the hope is that you do that and then you go into the interview and you can just go on autopilot and, and perform well.
0: Before I've gone to sleep at times, I don't know if anyone else out there has experienced this, but sometimes if I haven't accomplished my list, if you will, I'll ruminate and I'll be thinking about it as if I'm going to tackle the problem by thinking about it over and over and over. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that, but it has been helpful. And I didn't actually do it, but I knew if I did it, it would have helped me get back to sleep. Would have been to Perhaps write a list right before I go to bed of what I'm going to do tomorrow. So it when I get up, it'll be there. Is there any research that supports that? Well, you know,
1: the uh, I don't have a particular study in mind. so But I will say that when you're creating a list, what that does is that is a way of creating order, right? So you are in, in, in the same way that organizing the kitchen for me was a way of organizing my environment to compensate for the lack of order I felt inside. Uh, psychologically like my, my prediction would be that when you're creating a list that's what you're essentially also doing which is why it can provide people with some people with relief.
0: Ethan this has been an enlightening conversation and I'm so glad you could come on the show to share your research and discuss ideas from your book chatter. I find it really refreshing especially in light of so many things that are outside of our control today. There is one thing we can control and that's our negative self-talk, or as you call it, our chatter. If you're interested in learning more on this topic, I highly recommend reading Ethan Cross's book, Chatter, and I'll make sure to leave a link in my podcast notes so it's easy to find. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review and subscribe for more like this. I'd love to hear your feedback, and all the reviews helps me continue to produce this show. Thanks for listening.